Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so here's what I want to do. We've, we're, we're all, when we finish today, we'll be just about halfway through the book of Isaiah. And in this study of the book, it can get very confusing because it's prophecy mixed in with history and it's hard to track the timelines. And most of us are not good with geography. So when it comes to locations, everything is just kind of a mess. So what I wanna do periodically is just kinda hit pause and give a quick recap on where we are and what's been taking place just so mentally we know where we are because when we get into chapter 36 of Isaiah, we're gonna go almost completely historical. We're gonna see Hezekiah having this interaction with King Sennacherib of Assyria and we're gonna be pulled way out of this vibe of of just prophecy and and Isaiah and God speaking to the nations and an actual historical buildup. Okay, all these things that you've been saying, now some physical historical things are gonna take place. So let's do a quick recap of where we've been. Let's start back in Isaiah chapter one and let's go ahead and put this map up on the screen. You guys are familiar with this map, although I did show it to you in sections when we were going through the oracles of the nations in the book of Isaiah. We split them in half. They were covered about 10 chapters uh, and essentially God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Um, Here's what's going to happen to every one of these nations. All of them, they're gonna fall, all right? So, Judah, don't put your hope in these nations because they're all gonna crumble. So what you're looking at is a map uh, roughly around 735 BC where the book of Isaiah would have started. That's probably about the time where he would have started um, writing. You know, time period would probably be a little bit earlier than that, um, depending on when he started serving under Ahaz and when he had that call where he had the vision. Um, but we're just going to say for the sake of argument, 735, this is where we're talking about. And this is what the nations look like. I tried to color code them. It is a little deceptive. The, I, like there's two blues and there's three yellows. They're not in alliance with each other. I just ran out of colors. Uh, So each one of these individual nations represents a people group who were ruling in a specific location. And so at 735 BC, what happened is um, northern Israel, uh, that you see the the red part up there that says Israel, aligned with Syria, or uh, in the prophecies it was called Damascus, but same thing. Israel and Syria, the red and the blue, they formed together an alliance because Assyria up in the purple was starting to rattle some swords and tell everyone, hey, we're gonna conquer the region. So uh, Israel and Syria, Syria said, well, we can conquer Assyria if we get Judah on our side. And Jesus says, we don't wanna partner with you. We don't wanna be part of that. So they formed an alliance to say, okay, well, we're gonna come and conquer you and we're gonna make you fight with us. So in 735 BC, the rumor is Israel and Syria are forming an alliance to come and destroy Judah and the king of Judah at the time, his name's Ahaz and he's in this, he's starting to worry, well, what do I do? We, we, I, I'm, we're gonna be conquered. We're not gonna be a people anymore. We gotta, we gotta come up with some kind of plan to conquer these people. So what they do is, uh, well, Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, um, here's, here's what you do, uh, nothing. Don't do anything. Trust God. 
Trust that the Lord is gonna take care of this stuff and there's nothing that you need to do. You don't need to go to battle. You need to go form an alliance with some other nation. Just sit still and watch the Lord do his work because in the time that it would take for a child to grow up and start learning how to speak, Israel and Syria are not gonna be a nation anymore. They're gonna be destroyed. So your biggest fear, it's not gonna exist in less than three years. Did Ahaz listen? No, he didn't. He went up and talked to Assyria up in purple, the purple region, Judah, formed an alliance with Assyria and said, if you come and defeat my enemy Israel and Syria, we'll partner with you. Well, that happened. If you go to the next map, 722 BC, Assyria came in and God's prophecy was fulfilled. Look at that. Israel and Syria are completely swallowed up by Assyria. Now the purples, they, 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 are, they, they do have a connection. You following? It's very confusing. So Assyria, by, by 722, comes into Israel and Syria and starts conquering and the northern kingdom completely wiped out. And we don't ever hear from these people again. See, the tribes of Israel, there were 12 tribes. When the nation split, one tribe, Judah, stayed in the south and all the other 10 tribes went north and formed northern Israel. Those 11 tribes, you think, well, there's 12 tribes. Well, there's the Levites, but they weren't really considered a people group that had land. Their portion was the Lord, so they tended uh, the temple. So all of the remaining 10 tribes went north into Israel, and now by 722, they're gone, and they're never to be heard of again. Because what Assyria did is when they came in and conquered a nation, they would take everybody out of their homes, and they would go transplant them in a foreign region that they were not familiar with. It was psychological warfare. Because you're familiar with what crops work and the cycle of planting and where the water is and you've lived here your entire life, but then a nation comes in and conquers you and they go force you to live on some other part of the world and you're not familiar with the temperature or the weather cycles or how to even feed yourself with crops. And it's a constant reminder every day of how little you know because of how much you, how great your conqueror was and that they're in control. So Assyria came in in 722, wiped out Israel and Syria, they're gone. And what we see is that once Israel and Syria have been conquered, Assyria has a large appetite and they don't stop. So the alliance that Judah had with Assyria to conquer their northern enemy it flips on them because Assyria says, you know what, I, I, I don't just want Israel and Syria, I want the whole region. And so I know we had an alliance in order to conquer your enemy, but now you're my enemy. I want your land too. And now Judah's sweating and Isaiah's like, I told you this was gonna happen, you just listen to me. So what takes place over the next few years is that Assyria spreads their rule, they conquer the surrounding regions, and if you go to the next slide, by 701 BC, Assyria has conquered almost the entire region, fulfilling all of the oracles and the prophecies that Isaiah told Judah. Don't trust Moab, they won't be here. Don't trust Edom, Assyria's gonna conquer. Don't trust Babylon, they're gonna shrink down to practically nothing. Tyre, Sidon, gone. Cush, gone. Arabia, gone. Most of Judah gone. The reason why there's two little spots of orange is because by 701, there were only two cities that Assyria had not conquered. 
They were in the process of trying to conquer the, Phil- the Philistines, Philistia, that's the yellow, and they had not made their way all the way to Egypt. But it was inevitable. And so by 701 BC, this is the map that we see, this is the region, this is the power structure, and a new king is in, char- excuse me, in charge. Ahaz has died and his son Hezekiah has taken over. So at 701, this is what the map looks like. Hezekiah is in that large orange dot where Jerusalem would be, and he's trying to make a decision, what do we do? And he's got a bunch of advisors that are close to him, giving him really, really bad advice. What is the advice they're giving him? Hezekiah, here's what we need to do. And this is not as advi- just as advisors, these are the priests, the prophets, the seers, this is every person in leadership around Hezekiah. This is the advice they're giving the king. We need to go down and form an alliance with Egypt. See, strategically, we could kind of break through that little purple line and get to Philistia and we could partner with them and Egypt and then they could kind of flank and we could, we could hold some land. So this is the advice that the advisors are giving to King Hezekiah in 701 BC. Let's go down and trust Egypt. Now that the stage is set, let's get into the text. Go to Isaiah chapter 30, verse one. He says, ah, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet. Ah, you stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. You make an alliance, but not of my spirit. Your only goal is that you're adding sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? Therefore, because you're doing this, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, those are two northern cities in Egypt, everyone comes to to shame through a people who cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Here's an oracle on the beasts of the Negeb. Negeb is essentially the desert region. Oh, map's not there. The Negeb is the desert region that they would have had to travel through through Philistia to get to Egypt, so it's that strip of yellow. Here's an oracle of the beasts of the Negeb through a land of trouble and anguish. So you wanna go down to Egypt? You're gonna go through a trouble, a land of trouble and anguish from where the lions and the lionesses, the adder, and the flying fiery serpents. We know previously from other oracles, that's Assyria. They carry their riches in the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. All right, let's pause right there. So the drunk spiritual leaders that we read about in Isaiah chapter 29 have been giving Hezekiah bad advice and their advice is to form an alliance with Egypt and God's response to this alliance is a lament. Oh, you st- 
stubborn, stupid children. What are you doing? Have you not looked at the map lately? I told you that you couldn't trust in any of these nations because they would fall and all of them have been crushed. And I told you Egypt was in that list. What, why in the world would you go down and form a plan, form an alliance like that? You guys are making plans, but they're not my plans. You don't care anything about the spiritual covenant that I have with you. You would rather go seek help from your old slave masters than seek the Lord. And what he does in order to drive this home is paint this picture of what's gonna happen when they go down to this alliance. They're gonna travel through this desert. They're gonna face danger and enemies. And they're gonna ask for help and that help that they ask for is gonna turn to their own shame. Why is the help going to turn to shame? Because Egypt is a tired old Rahab. Now this is interesting because for most of us, we've heard that name before. We associate it with Rahab the harlot. We know who she is. She's in the line of Jesus' genealogy. We've, 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 we've got her when the children of Israel come in. So there's this person, Rahab. But that person, Rahab, that girl, she got that name from somewhere else. Her, her dad didn't invent that name. Rahab is a very common name in this entire region because Rahab was considered the name for the chaotic force that is at work in this region and was always fighting against the men and the gods. I imagine it was probably something to the effect of like, uh, you know, you, you're trying to accomplish something in your life and there's this force. It just feels like just doesn't matter what you do, you can't make any headway. How do you explain that as, as somebody living in 700 BC? Oh, I'm fighting against Rahab. There's this cosmic, chaotic, spiritual darkness that it doesn't matter what I do, I cannot get over it. That's Rahab. And Rahab is referenced other places in the Bible too. The book of Job is filled with scriptures of how God has conquered this concept of Rahab. He is the one who overcomes this dark spiritual force. And in Job, it is often pictured as this great serpent or dragon. And what Isaiah is saying to Judah who wants to go seek help from Egypt, who views Egypt as this great Rahab or cosmic dragon who is gonna save them from their enemies. He says, don't go down to Egypt. You, you think they're a Rahab? That, that old dragon is too weak and too tired to help you. I call that nation who you think will be your salvation a tired old dragon who's too weak to move. That's what he's saying in verse seven. Before we go on, I think it's important for us to touch on this subject because what the people of God are doing here, 
I see working itself out in the lives of the people of God regularly. I see it working itself out in my life as well. And that is the temptation to go back to former things, old slave masters, old way of doing things, your old familiar um, concepts from your old life before you became a believer and decided to accept Jesus' new way of doing things. When you're confronted with a problem, your, your first response is to go back and use the old tools that you use to solve problems. To go back and find comfort in the old slave master the old person, the old structure that used to run your life. You left a job that was horrible for you and things start falling apart and this new experience and your first instinct is maybe, maybe I should go back to the way, to where, I mean it wasn't great but at least there was some stability. This is what the people of Judah are struggling with. They can't trust that God will get them through the thing they have now confronted because they have more trust in the way things used to be. And you hear this as the people of Israel, when they left uh, Egypt and they're wandering around in the wilderness, they're constantly saying things just like, well, Moses, why did you lead us out here into the desert? At least when we were slaves, we could sit around at night and eat meat pots. And now we're having to eat all of these just doves and manna, I don't even know what this manna stuff is but it's hot and there's sand everywhere. I miss home. Buddy, that wasn't home, you were a slave. But in some sense, that was home, it's all you knew. And you build this mentality that all you'll ever be is a slave. And when you're confronted with the the reality that, that God says, no, I'm setting you free. You're now free, all of the, you're inheriting all of my kingdom. Well, but, uh, but at least I know what to do back then. At least I had some control back then. It wasn't much, but it was something. So what is it inside of the, the, the heart of the people of God that makes us romanticize our captivity and chase our former seasons of slavery? I, I, don't, I don't know that I have a good answer to the question. I don't know if it's because we like the comfort. I don't know if it's because of the memories. I I don't know if it's because life used to be predictable. But whatever the answer to it is, I think it warrants a wrestling in our soul. I think it's something that you should consider in the process of you making a decision. When you're confronted with something difficult, when you're honest with yourself, are you trying to solve this problem with the old ways that you grew up with or with the new ways that he's teaching you. So go to verse eight. So now the Lord is speaking to Isaiah. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So. I want you to write down what I'm about to say because this is gonna last forever because of the decision that my people are making. Verse nine, they are a rebellious people, a lying children, children unwearying, excuse me, unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They say to the seers, please do not see, and to the prophets, please do not prophesy to us what is right. How about you speak to us smooth things, prophecy, excuse me, prophesy illusions. 
Now, it's really easy for us to just kind of say, oh man, those, those dumb Jews. Those silly Judy, Judeans. Mm. We're not just talking about Jews from the uh, 700 BC. We're talking about the people of God that transcends all time of all people who have ever been called the people of God. And when you're reading this, you're not just reading God's indictment on a people group at one period in history. You're reading the indictment on his people all throughout history because we have a bad habit of living like rebellious, lying children who are unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. And we do have a habit of saying when we hear truth, you know what, how about, how about you t- stop telling me the truth? Tell, tell me some, some smooth things. How about you prophesy to me some illusions? How about you make up some nice things? When I come on Sunday, can you just tell me something that will make me feel better? And if you won't, I'll just go find another church. Because there's plenty of them. Verse 11 says, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This is what they're saying to their God. Verse 12, therefore, Thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore the iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. And it's, it's, it's breaking as like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which that can take fire from the hearth or dip up water out of the cistern. For thus, said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. I offered to you salvation and quietness and trust. I said all you had to do was trust me. Don't do anything, just trust me. And verse 16, you said, no, we're gonna flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. You wanna get on horses and flee and go out to battle? You're gonna get on horses and flee, but it's not to battle. And you said, we will ride upon swift steeds. We're gonna go out to war. We're gonna make, make alliances with the nations. Well, you're gonna go out on some swift steeds, but your p- pursuers are gonna be following you. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one and the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Pause right there. This section is God's response to Judah seeking help from the old slave masters and it's a series of you chose this, so I'm going to do this. So just a quick recap so we don't get lost in all the prophetic language. God is saying, you want your old life? You wanna shut your ears to my words? You want a quick solution to your problems? You wanna get on your horses and ride out to battle? You wanna reject the offer that I have? and I will let you have what you so desperately seek and you will fail. And your failure is gonna be kinda like somebody who built a tower but, but put too many bricks on one side of it and it kinda bulges out and nobody knows when it's gonna crumble and fall but it will eventually crumble and fall and your choices are gonna end up being like somebody who smashed the, uh, a, a potter's vessel to the ground and it's gonna break into so many pieces that not one of them will be large enough to actually draw water from a well. The Lord is saying these choices that you have made, because I love you, 
I'm going to let you experience the full stupidity of these choices. And this is, this section is just ripe with echoes of the prodigal son story that Jesus taught. In Luke 15, 11 through 32, there's this story of this loving father who gave his kids everything. And one of them said, Dad, I wanna go out into the world and just I wanna build my own thing. I don't wanna see what's out there. I don't want you to give me my inheritance now. And the father is like, no, you don't want, you don't want that. He said, no, no, I do want that. So after this consistent arguing back and forth, the father just says, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grant you your wish. I know what you're gonna find out there because I've been out there and I wanna save you from that, but I love you more than that and so I'm gonna let you experience the stupidity of your choices and the father gave him his inheritance and he went out and he squandered it all on women and booze and, uh, and, 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 and gambling and he lost all of it and he found himself sitting in a pigsty among these animals, eating their slop, and he says to himself, I should probably go back home because at least my father will take me in as one of his servants and I'll eat better than this. And when he goes home, what does he find? He sees the loving father waiting for him, sees him from a distance, and starts running towards him. See, what's interesting about that story is that the father didn't go out and find his son in the slop. His father waited till his son realized the foolishness of his decisions and came home. And when he did that, what was the father's posture? Not, I told you that was gonna happen. No, the father's posture is wide arms. I love you. I've been waiting for you. I'm glad you learned that lesson because what you have now, you actually, you're ahead of your brother who didn't experience that. And we find out later in the story, the other brother who didn't leave, he lived in resentment because the brother who went out and experienced the world came back with a gratitude that the other brother didn't have because he knew what was out there. Now, do you need to go out there to experience how bad it is? No, you can simply trust God and you don't have to go out there. But there is a blessing for those who did go out there and squandered the inheritance and came back and said, I was a fool. You were right all along. And what I learned can never be taken away from me. And this is the most difficult part about parenting. It's not just parenting, it's also discipleship, it's, it's, it's also um, mentoring, it's also walking through life with one another, but the reality is that sometimes the best, the most loving thing you can do for somebody is to let them fail because there are some lessons in life that you cannot learn any other way than just failing. And it's painful, it's unbelievably uncomfortable to let the people that you cherish and love fail, but unless they do, they cannot experience the joy of returning and living in a gratitude that they didn't have before. There's a sense in Isaiah 30 and from the prodigal story that failure brings its own sense of lessons and growth and those lessons and growth are shared when we get into verse 18, so let's go there. 
So the Lord said he's gonna let them crumble, they're gonna let them be destroyed. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When you're gonna come home, guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna be gracious to you. He's gonna be like a father with his arms open wide. As soon as he hears it, he's gonna answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, oof, now that's a bumper sticker. Yet your teacher will not hide himself from you but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. (laughs) Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold metal images and you will scatter them as unclean things and you will say to them, be gone. What is the response of letting the Lord let that bulge in your tower crumble, it brings humiliation onto you and it fosters repentance. And you come home and you see a father who says, I love you. And it makes you wanna go through that closet and get rid of all of those idols that you've been holding onto. Verse 23, and he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, our livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fell. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of the seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. So what, what are we seeing? We're seeing a God that is a loving father who lets his children taste adversity and affliction. He lets them experience the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. That's our steady diet because he knows that once we taste it, there's something on the other side of it. When you go through it, you are purified. When you go through it, you are perfected. When you go through it, you learn patience. When you go through it, you start growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And on the other side of that bread and that water, all of a sudden you start seeing your life as more filled with joy and love and peace and kindness and goodness. And I would say that that is one of the greatest evidences that our God is real. How do we know that a God we can't see is real? Because there is no shortage of fruit in the lives of his people that he is at work in. 
You show me a broken man who has been transformed by Jesus. And you look at his life and this, this dude was just, he was a wretch. He gave himself fully to this world and then he meets Jesus and then all of a sudden he's, he's confronted with the reality that I have to treat my family kinder. I've gotta love my wife richer. I've gotta make sacrifices for my family because I love them. Why? Because my Savior did that for me. And you start seeing the fruit of this and it becomes the evidence that heaps us on itself. Lord, what are you doing in the midst of calling these broken people? I wouldn't have chose that person. I would not have reached down into prison and called that dude for these things. And he says, I know you wouldn't have done it. That's why I didn't ask your opinion. So he lets us taste this adversity and this affliction. What comes on the other side of it? Gratitude, rejoicing, and singing. Go to verse 29. Verse 29 says, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept. You're gonna have gladness of heart. And when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel, the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloud burst of storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on him will be the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king, it is already made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance, the breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. What can the enemy expect? Complete and utter destruction. What can the people of God expect when the enemy is shouting and cresting over the hills with, enemy, with, with, with instruments of war threatening the people of God? What can they expect to hear? The people of God singing. We are ridiculously singing people. Look, some of this stuff in here, I get it. It makes you feel very uncomfortable. The singing loudly, the shouting, I get it. For some of you, you're like, that's not how I grew up. I get it. All of a sudden, you got somebody over here dancing. You're like, I don't know how I feel about that. And Christy's like, everyone raise your hands. Well, I don't know what I think. Look. Here's the deal, we, we come from a long line of people who sing and dance and shout and play instruments and raise their hands and raise a ruckus. You are participating in something that's been going on a long time before you got here. I'm not telling you you've got to or that you're wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we have a long history of being rowdy people, but not the kind of rowdy people that get online and start letting everybody have a piece of our mind. The kind of rowdy people who can't stop singing about the goodness of the Lord and know his word inside and out, can't stop repeating it in our heads on a regular basis and letting what is in here come out in here and in our calendars and in our money and the way we talk to people, this truth affects everything. 
And that shouting, that raising the hands, the getting out and moving around, and some of you watching me like, I don't know how I feel about a pastor who's, who's, who's swaying and dancing during worship. He didn't even wear nice shoes to church. Here's the deal. There is a brokenness and humility that our Savior walked in, not a three-piece suit. There was an association that he had with the lowest among us that I feel like we are losing because of our desire to chase this world. And what he's inviting us into is not a better version of your life now, it is a broken version of your life now that makes more sense than it's ever made. The kind of life that says, if you follow me, you're gonna be broken down to the core. But the core is rotten anyway. So let me have my way in you. And on the other side of this, if you believe me by faith, on the other side of this, there's gonna be nothing but joy in singing when you see me moving. Now Isaiah 31 is a shorter chapter, it's only nine verses, but here's the funny thing. It's a complete repeat of chapter 30. He says all the same things that he just, literally just said in chapter 30. But the funny thing about 31, about it repeating over and over, it begs the question, well, why, why did you do that, Isaiah? Why did, you, why did you say the exact same thing in fewer terms? Why, did, why are you repeating yourself? And I think the answer is because the repetition is the key to learning. Repetition is the key to learning. See what I did there? God wants his people to think differently. He wants his people to live differently and it's not enough to hear the right true thing one time. You gotta hear the right true thing over and over and it's gotta be reminded from this corner and from this corner and from this perspective and standing over here because hearing it once is not enough. I think that's the reason why he did it. He wants his people to ask like, what is my greatest concern? Is my greatest concern my enemy is my greatest concern the danger that's coming my way tomorrow is my greatest concern the God who controls tomorrow. Where should I, where should I put my, my, my attention? Should I be spending it thinking about what's coming tomorrow or should I spend it worshiping the God who is, he's in control of tomorrow, I don't have to worry about it. Now let's go to 32. 32 is really wild because he shifts gears a little bit but he's still in that same train of thought and he starts letting the leaders of the time really have it. Verse 32, verse one, it says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes of those who will see will not be closed, and the ears of those who will hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. 
He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. All right, this is an important section here because what Isaiah is doing in 32, and he's done it a little bit up until this point, but what he's doing here is he's starting to seed into the hearts of the people that one of the fundamental issues of the day is weak, cowardly leadership. The problem with the people starts at the top. The people at the top are corrupt. The people at the top are taking bribes. The people at the top are telling the people what they want to hear rather than what the Lord is saying. So the issue that we have starts at the top, flows down to the people, and we've got to fix this somehow. So how do we fix the issues that start at the top? How do we fix the fact that the leadership is corrupt? God's got a clean house. Now, immediately, as soon as I started saying that, you're like, your mind went to politics. You're like, mm-hmm. Now he's preaching my language. Isaiah, man, he must have saw America. No, Isaiah's not talking about America. This is a spiritual principle that is everywhere. Yes, it's seen in our country because weak, cowardly, leaders who are corrupt at every stage of leadership, that stuff flows down to all of the people and it affects everything within the culture. But he's not talking about America. He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about us. He's talking about issues that we have in our own lives because we let people who, who tell us what we like to hear get all of the FaceTime and all of the likes, all of the podcast listens. And what we do is we, we spend very little time studying this and asking the Lord to to, to confront us, to besiege us, to transform us. We spend a lot of time only listening and only subscribing to the things that make us feel better. And Isaiah says that's a problem. It's a problem when everyone at the top is in it for their own agenda. So what are we gonna do? This is 700 BC. What is the Lord gonna do? He's gonna clean house. He's gonna sift the leaders. He's gonna remove them from leadership. He's gonna pull the rug out from under them and he's gonna give you a leader worth following. Now, this is gonna continue. This is only gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger as we get through Isaiah, but he's seeding into the people this concept that we cannot live any more of our lives unless we start looking forward to this person, God sending the person, this, and, and, and in Hebrew, it was referred to as a Messiah, this anointed one. We need somebody to show up and be the leader that nobody else can. We need somebody who's humble. We need somebody who loves the people more than they love themselves. We need somebody who's not in it for the corrupt bribery. We need somebody to show us what real servant leadership looks like. So he starts this here, and he does it by comparing the leadership of the day. What we have is a, is a leadership problem. We've got fools leading people. We've got scoundrels in charge, and everyone's calling them honorable. So what, how do we fix this? Well, God's got to fix it, and he does it by sending in the Messiah. So what we've got to start preparing ourselves is the coming day where this guy is going to show up. This man is going to be the kind of leader that we want to follow. How does he do it? He institutes this process of affliction. How does he purge the wicked leadership from the top? He goes in with affliction and suffering, and guess what? Surprise, the people who are in it for themselves and just for the money, they don't stick around when things get tough. 
all of a sudden they disappear and they leave their country in ruins because they got no backbone. They don't love the people. They love themselves. And God says, I'm going to turn up the heat. I'm going to boil all that garbage off. And when there's an absence of leadership, I'm going to come to my people and I'm going to serve them and I'm going to love them. This is what he's saying in 32, 1 through 8. God's going to come in and he's going to wipe out these corrupt leaders and he's going to set a model of leadership that's going to come from the top. And this kind of leader, he's gonna model servant leadership. He's gonna whisper to the people, this is the way. He's not gonna beat them with a whip and say, get in line, why are you being so stupid? No, he's gonna kindly come behind them and say, I love you, this is the way. And he's gonna show us how to walk in it by modeling it. He's gonna be the kind of king who reigns in righteousness. He's gonna be the kind of guy that everyone wants to follow. And this Messiah, spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, is looking at Jesus. And he knows that Jesus is the kind of guy who makes people feel safe. He's the kind of person that shelters people in the storm. He's the kind of people that opens eyes and ears for them to grow in maturity and not act like manipulative children. He satisfies hungry souls and encourages transformation. But here's the beauty of it, and this is what in verse one, it says, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. So he's talking about a leadership structure. There's gonna be a king who's gonna set a standard in his kingdom on how leadership should be run, and everybody who rules under him, who has some level of responsibility of leadership, who is given some talent and some area to facilitate, they're gonna operate with the same kind of servant leadership that he is. They're going to take his cues from him. Who is, who is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about us. He's talking about you in areas of, of your job, in areas of your school, in areas of your home. These little pockets where you take leadership responsibility, these are now going to be outposts of joy outposts of, uh, of rejoicing and singing in the middle of a completely dark world. That is what the church is supposed to be. That is what your home is supposed to be in that neighborhood. Isaiah is talking about a structure that Jesus will institute and that his followers will be called to follow that will then set in motion these outposts in an exiled world where corrupt leaders rule the day and people who have no hope are looking everywhere. Is there an answer? I didn't see it over here. I didn't find it in this political party. I didn't see it chasing this education. I didn't see it in getting all of this money. I didn't see it going over here and doing this, uh, uh, you know, uh, marketing plan. Is there anybody with answers? And all of a sudden on the horizon, it's like a little light and you walk up and it's Troy Wiberly's house. And you're, you're like, God, just things, things seem so different in here than out there in the world. And then they go over to, to somebody else's house and they, and they, and they go over to here and they're just like, man, it's, it's just like, I, I, can, I, I can see just a shred of what eternity will be like when I share a meal with your family. I like working with you. I don't like working with these other people, but there's something different about you. That's how the world describes it. Let's go to verse nine. This is, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder. 
you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones, and strip, and make yourselves bare, and tie sackcloth around your waist, and beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. A Messiah is coming to bring new leadership, and with that leadership comes the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. And that affliction means the land is gonna be swept clean, and everybody from the social top to the social bottom will be affected. Let's finish it, verse 15, until this is gonna happen until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings. All right, careful, don't read it too fast because he's starting to talk about you. He's talking about what happens to God's people after the trials and the tribulations go through and we endure. This is seen uh, as a foreshadowing for eternity. This is what will happen in eternity, but this is also the way that we're called to live here. Verse 18, my people will abide in peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Here's the contrast. It will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low, but happy are you who sow beside all waters who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. The land is gonna be at peace. The people will be at peace. Peace is what God is offering to his people in eternity, but also right now. And that word peace, you've probably heard this before, the Hebrew word for that peace is shalom. And it doesn't just mean peace. It means complete wholeness. It means every aspect of your life is touched by the mercy and the grace of God. It is safety, it is prosperity, it is success, it is health, it is friendliness, it is deliverance, it is salvation. It is a complete wholeness in your life. So this is what Isaiah is telling us and telling the people, that God is offering to us a life that looks nothing like this world. And in that vein, that it looks nothing like this world, what, is, what does that mean? It means that while the city is burning just over the hill because they want their stuff more than the Lord and the enemy is overtaking them. What are we doing? We're watering our crops by the field and letting our cows wander wherever they want to because there is a peace of mind that we live in in the midst of a chaotic world that looks like an outpost in a forsaken land and it is attractive to people with no hope. What is the most valuable tool that you have in your arsenal for evangelism? It is the relationships that you build so that people can get close enough to see the impact of what faith in God does in your life and the lives of your families. This is what he's offering. If you come to me and if you endure what you will experience is ridiculous, nonsense peace 
when everyone around you is screaming that their hair is on fire. Do you want that? Then come to me. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.